Take your Bibles and turn with me this evening, please, to Philippians chapter 4. Into this final chapter of Philippians. Throughout the epistle, our focus has been upon unity within our church in the same manner that I believe Paul's focus has been upon unity in the Philippian church. And Paul presents unity as the source of the church's joy, effectiveness, and testimony before the world. So in chapter 2, Paul exhorted us unto the mind of Christ, where we each esteem other better than ourselves, calling us unto a recognition of the rewards, the heavenly rewards that uh, come at the end of that road of the mind of Christ, at the end of that road of selfless service one to another. And then in chapter 3, we gain possible insight into the nature of this disunity in that Paul warns against a, a false system of teaching, specifically legalism or moralism, seeking to replace grace with an effort unto personal merit. It is possible that this was the source of disunity, uh, though as I taught it, I said it seems more likely to me, not necessarily that the, this false doctrine was the source of the disunity, as much as it may have been a danger that Paul saw uh, more lurking on the outskirts because of the weakness of the church due to their disunity. One way or another, um, Philippians 3 calls them to be careful of this error, beginning with warnings, and then uh, Paul working into his own testimony of counting all things but loss for Christ, and then ending, as we considered last week again, with those many that walk in a manner unto destruction, right? As enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. And this brings us to chapter 4. Now remember, chapter divisions are not inspired by God. These are letters that we are reading, which means that they didn't have chapter divisions or verse divisions in their original form. They were written in the form of a letter. These things, the verse divisions, the chapter divisions, they were added later in order to make it easier to reference various points uh, for clarity's sake, for uh, these reasons, but they can also impose upon our minds unintended consequences, can't they? Uh, synthetic divisions in the text where maybe divisions are not warranted. Now, it helps when I'm preaching through uh, a, a chapter of Scripture. It helps when I'm preaching through an epistle or, or a book to have those natural divisions in place where I can stop, right? It gives me a, a stopping point when I come to the end of a verse and I don't want to get into something new. We see many times that these verses, and particularly the chapter divisions, are broken up in nice places where there is a, a, a strong change of thought or a change of direction as it relates to, specifically in this case, the letter. But, but then also, don't forget that Paul wrote these as letters. And to a degree, this is certainly not an egregious case uh, where a chapter division is in a place that can really throw off our, our, the continuity of our thoughts, as some other chapter divisions might be. But to a degree, we might see this as it relates to the beginning of Philippians 4, that it is very much a continuation of the context, not just of Philippians 3, but really going all the way back to Philippians chapter 2. And so today we will consider chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, very much in the context of what we have been learning about thus far. I named the sermon Practical Unity Through Confrontational Love. 
in many ways, at least as I read these verses and would seek to interpret them properly, Philippians 4, 1 through 5 feels a bit like a, a culmination of everything that Paul has been working toward since the exhortation of chapter 2. He's spoken in the theoretical sense for some time, speaking of the body, about the needs that are within their body, remarking of his determination to send Epaphroditus back to them, though he loved him and though he wanted to keep him because it was more needful for them, lest they continue with their illness, as we uh, drew that analogy at the end of chapter two. And yet, to this point, Paul has been somewhat ambiguous as it relates to the direct concerns of the church itself. Whatever it was that Epaphroditus told him, whatever it was uh, that was going on in the church, to this point, we've only heard about it in a broad, a general, a theoretical way. That's going to change a little bit in Philippians 4. Here, Paul speaks to certain individuals in the church, and he exhorts the church in this regard and regarding them specifically. And this can perhaps stir within us a remembrance not only that unity is a direct and practical concern to the church, but also that unity at times must be fought for, must be contended for, not simply expected to form through circumstance. It's really nice when I as a pastor can just see something happening in the church and say, oh, I'm going to give it a little time and hopefully it'll go away. And then you see through time and circumstance that things just kind of iron themselves out. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? A lot of times in the church, I have to sit down with someone or a group of people and I have to help them iron some things out. I have to be confrontational. I have to tell somebody, hey, something is wrong. Let's talk about it. And that's not fun and it's not easy, but it is necessary from time to time, isn't it? Parents, we have to do this with our children. Spouses, we have to do this one with another. Siblings, we have to do this one with another. Friends have to do this one to another. And we're seeing an exhortation unto that this evening. So let's dig into the text. In verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul says this, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, um, so stand, Okay, there's, uh, I'm sorry. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I thought I was missing a word there on my screen, but it doesn't look like it. Let me read that again since I kind of stopped us right in the middle. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. The old adage goes that when you come to a therefore in the text, the first thing you need to do is figure out what it is therefore, right? Therefore and wherefore are transition conjunctions which express a concluding thought to a, that follows a set of claims or a set of assertions. This, then this, then this, therefore do this, right? Because of this, because of that, wherefore, therefore, do this thing, think this way, uh, act in this manner. Following the teaching of chapter 3, where Paul exhorts the church to count all things but loss, where Paul exhorts the, uh, exhorts the church in relation to this necessity of following him as he follows Christ. As he counted all things but loss, he says, Brethren, follow me in this endeavor. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Avoid these men. Avoid these false doctrines. Watch out for those who are walking at, pertaining to earthly things, minding earthly things, and rather have your conversation in heaven. All of these exhortations in place, all of these desires in place. And then he says, therefore. Paul sets his next set, uh, his next set of, of, of exhortations 
as the natural consequence of the teaching up to this point. And then he does something very, very important here. This is a lesson which we all need to learn. Paul then reminds them of his love for them. Now, chapter one, he speaks regularly of how they are his rejoicing, of how much he loves this church. And then he has exhorted them, and then he has, he has uh, told them some things uh, which they're not going to enjoy hearing. And now, again, he reaffirms his love to them. He addresses them not only as brethren here, a title reflecting his confidence that they share with him a relationship in Christ, right? That's what that word brethren would typically mean in the scriptures. Though it is the word brother, uh, we see how the relationship of the early church um, operated. And one of the things that they did is they called themselves brother and sister as a recognition of their unique heritage, common heritage of God as their father. And so he addresses them with that confidence, but he also reminds them of that which, as I mentioned, he expressed at the beginning of the letter. And that was many months ago for us, right? But this was only a few paragraphs ago for, for them as they read through this letter, telling them just how much he loves them. He calls them his joy and crown, the beloved and longed for. This is a very special church to Paul. We might give any number of possible reasons why they were such a special church. We will see in the next couple of verses that he, he counts, he labored with them. We know that this was the first really successful um, church to have formed in Macedonia after accepting what we often call the Macedonian call. So we do see some unique elements to this church. And it's been very apparent since the beginning of the epistle that this church held a very special place in Paul's heart. He reminds them of that. Remember, this is the motivation for his writing. This is the motivation. Epaphroditus came to him, came to him with, with blessings. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. With material help for Paul. Paul was blessed by the material help. He was blessed more by the minister. And yet hearing what Epaphroditus had to say about the condition of this church, he became deeply troubled. And that was the motivation for him to write back to them. Don't lose sight of that. Humans are very hasty. To see any personal criticism or even simply remarks about differences or disagreements as something that is hostile toward them. This is a tendency we have, that if somebody comes up and disagrees with us, or even if someone is critical of something that we might say or we might do, that we immediately take the, that as something which is hostile. We interpret upon that criticism a measure of personal attack. We can be quick to think that people are attacking us and so be quick to become grieved or offended when we receive some measure of criticism. When in fact, the intent behind these measures of criticism or some remark of difference or some remark of disagreement is perhaps actually love. Not a means of tearing you down, but a means of building you up. And this is so important for us to remember. We do live in a time where criticism is, is, is not well taken by most. We live in a time where differences and disagreements among us are seen as personal attacks. And we need to avoid this mindset where if someone disagrees with us or someone comes up and says, hey, I just wanted to let you know there's something wrong here or amiss here or whatever the case might be. Have you thought about things in this light that 
they're doing that because they love you. It's not easy, is it, to confront people? And particularly when you expect that by confronting them, it might take what it would be a normally um, uh, at least functional situation and turn it into a very awkward or unpleasant situation, right? Personal relationships. Personal relationships are, are, are hard enough without imposing upon them the awkwardness of, of, of some measure of criticism. And yet what are we if not a family? What are we if not a group of people that can help one another out by showing each other our blind spots, by exhorting one another unto being better. If, if no one ever comes up to me and tells me what I'm doing wrong, how can I get better? As a minister, if no one co ever comes up and says, hey, pastor, have you ever thought that maybe our church is lacking in this particular area? Well, maybe I, may, may, you know, just let pastor figure it out. He'll get there. Yeah, maybe in five years, six years. Maybe once my kids are a little bit older and I can finally think again. Are we going to wait that long? Well, what if we could shortcut the process and you could come up and say, hey, pastor, our church is lacking in this area. And I could go, oh, thank you. I hadn't thought about that. And now I could say, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you attack me in my ministry? But that wouldn't, I mean, it's possible, right? And that's what, what would normally stop someone from coming up and saying that. Uh, the pastor doesn't need that right now, criticism, whatever the case may be. But if there's something wrong, we ought to be able to help one another through that. How can we get better if we're not being stretched, if we're not being encouraged to grow, if no one is allowed to point out potential flaws or weaknesses in my actions or my thinking or my convictions? How can I expect to be strengthened? If I don't use my muscles, they're not going to grow. If I'm not stretched, if there's no, no pain, no gain, right? Sometimes the greatest times of growth come through the greatest times of pain. And it's unfortunate, but it's very human, isn't it? Sometimes we need to be brought to a realization of our flaws if we're going to get through them in a functional and effective manner. Many of Paul's letters have major elements of correction in them, don't they? This is not because Paul was angry at these churches. We do see Paul uh, getting a little bit upset at the church of Corinth. He says that he's glad that he wrote a letter lest he have to come to them and change his voice toward them, right? So uh, the, the church of Corinth is maybe a little bit of a, of, of a unique situation where they were in such egregious error. They were living in such deep carnality uh, that Paul was very thankful that they responded to his letter lest he had to come to them in person, right? Don't make me come down there, right? But much to the contrary, Paul's criticisms and his corrections and even his rebukes came from a place of deep and abiding love, a confrontational desire to see these men and women be better for the Lord. And this is where, what James exhorts us to in James 1, verse 19. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, this exhortation by James is not actually three individual concepts. It's one progressive thought, that we be quick to listen by being slow to speak and slow to wrath. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. One cohesive idea there. 
Because when we're listening to something that we don't like, humans are, in fact, very quick to answer back with self-justification, very quick to get upset and offended. We, are, we become uh, um, slow to hear, we become quick to speak back, and we become, become quick to get angry, right? And we know that this is the context. We know that this is the call, because immediately after James exhorts them to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, in verses uh, 21 through 25... He then calls them to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving the, their own selves. So the natural connection of context is that we as humans have a tendency to hear correction, such as what we find in the scriptures, such as Paul is giving here to the church of Philippi, and then immediately seek to justify ourselves, be swift to speak, or immediately become, be quick to become offended quick to wrath. It is natural when someone criticizes you to well up within you some sort of offense. But that's where you've got to stop. Say, wait a minute. Let's think about what they just told me. What if it's true? What would things be like if it were true? Let's find out if it is true. Stop the intent of becoming offended. Stop the intent of justifying myself and just start listening. That's the call. James calls us to be slow to answer in our own defense and just as slow to become angry and offended and much to the rather be hasty and eager to hear and consider corrections, criticisms, and concerns regarding ourselves. See, because if I'm not willing to do it when my brother or sister in Christ comes up to me and tells me there's something wrong, how hasty will I be to do it when I'm reading the Word of God and the Spirit of God says, that's you. Change it. How quick will I be to self-justify or to become offended at the Word of God? As a matter of fact, how often is it? Well, I, I don't know how often it is with you, but how often have I had people tell me, I don't like that you're guilt-tripping me? when I, all I did is tell them what the Bible says. I'm not guilt-tripping you, but the Holy Spirit is telling you something. All I did was tell you what the Bible says. And if there is guilt conviction there, that's not me doing that, right? But they become quick to be offended because they're not, they're, they're not comfortable with criticism. We, we all do this, don't we? But these things, these corrections, these criticisms, these, these explanations of concerns, this is how we get better. This is how we grow. Coming back to our context then. It is not love to see others' problems, to see their weak points, and to keep those things to yourself. It is not love to avoid helping someone get better simply to avoid confrontation with them. That's selfishness. It is you not wanting to take upon yourself the, maybe the investment, the time, or the emotional or interpersonal issues that will come with that confrontation. So as Paul is about to confront the actual needs of the church, the actual needs of individuals in the church in a personal level, he begins with a reminder of just how much he loves them. And may I exhort you unto this as well. If you are going to come up to your pastor, or if you are going to go, go up to anyone in the church, and uh, bring about in conversation a measure of confrontation or criticism. 
Don't forget to let them know how much you love them. Don't forget to let them know that you're not here to attack them. You're here to help them. This will go a long way. One of the things that really helped me when I was uh, being mentored in my college years was, um, and this is not an uncommon thing in, in the business world, but they called it the hamburger method. Right? You've got pieces of bread, and then in between, you've got the meat. They said, start when you, whenever you're, you're evaluating someone and you're trying to help them grow and you're mentoring them, you start with something good they're doing, then you hit the thing that they're doing wrong that they need to change, then you put something else good on the other end of it. You, you sandwich the problem in with things that they're doing well. And that helps them re maintain a proper perspective as it relates to the criticism that you're giving them. Paul's very much doing that here. He starts the letter with love. He's ending the letter with love. And in between, he's correcting the church. So he tells them how much he loves them. Then he reminds them, secondly, of what he wants of them, which is not for himself. This is not his personal agenda, but rather it's something for the Lord's sake. Stand fast in the Lord. Hold to what you know to be true from Scripture. Stay loyal not to Paul, but to God. Don't allow awkwardness. Don't allow discomfort. Don't allow unpleasant nature of conversation. Don't allow selfishness to stop you from doing what is right, to stop the unity that you're supposed to have in the Lord, to stop the church from standing together and standing fast in the Lord. And all of this serves to undergird his exhortations, which we first read in verse 2. He says, I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So then, as Paul affirms his love for the church, he then narrows his exhortation down to two women that were in the church, named Iodius and Syntyche, and he calls for them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And take note of that modifier, in the Lord. There is no obligation, no advantage, and in fact, there is a strong measure of detriment oftentimes to all of us thinking the same way. In the world today, it's called being in an echo chamber where we are around the pe people who have so little by way of difference in outlook, expectation, or desire from ourselves that when we're all wrong, we have absolutely no reference point to understand that we're wrong because we're all thinking the same way. No one with whom we interact thinks differently, so there's no one to show us that we are different. And in an echo chamber of sorts, and maybe you've experienced this before, maybe you've experienced this in your family, where you've been around your family and your family does something in a certain way, and then there comes a point where you get out into the world and you realize what we do is very different. But you've lived inside that echo chamber and so you didn't realize how different things were inside your family, right? Because everyone was thinking the same way. It's what you knew, it's what your parents knew, it's what the siblings knew, it's what you knew. And this can be a problem, right? It can stunt our growth. It can lead to error. It can make us uh, to where when we get out and we begin to interact with others, we, we, we have awkward situations. This is why we need people with differing opinions to speak freely in the church. Error is only understood as a contrast to the truth, right? Truth is best found when everyone is free to disagree and speak freely, and we, then we can recognize the truth as we speak through these disagreements. So the call here is not that Yodius and Syntyche would start agreeing on everything, thoughts and perspectives and, and, and outlook and all of that. 
It's not that God is, uh, Paul is calling them or God is calling us to become a church of clones where we all share the exact same standards, the exact same expectations, the exact same thinking about every uh, subset of doctrines, but rather that they be of the same mind in the Lord, that they do have the same thinking as it relates to sound doctrine, that they each assume the mind of Christ whereby they would hold fast to this principle that they are going to esteem other better than themselves. They hold fast to the principle of counting all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus their Lord. Uh, I often talk about this in marriage counseling when I'm talking to a, a married couple. And I say, rather than just trying to draw close one to another, if you are both seeking to draw closer to the Lord, you will find a unity of mind and of spirit. And it doesn't mean that you're going to become the same, right? You're not going to like the same things all the time. You're not going to enjoy reading the same books or watching the same movies per se, but you will find a unity in the Lord. That is what the church is called to do. Stand fast in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. And this is a call for us as well. Nobody wants this church to become an echo chamber of a single set of ideas and thoughts. It is important and essential that we have people with varying degrees of disagreement as it relates to life based upon their own experiences and understandings and circumstances so that we find our unity in common doctrine and in common truth and not explicitly in common preference or common application, or common outlook on life. Now, it's wonderful when we find those people who share those commonalities, but it's not necessary for unity. The commonalities of unity is doctrine and truth, right? Not preference and application. In the Lord, in common doctrine and truth, in principled love and loyalty to the word of God above my own feelings and my own priorities, this is where unity lies and indeed where it is essential if the church is going to be effective and have a right testimony for the Lord. You and I may not agree, but if I love you, if I have your best interests in mind, if I am willing to set myself aside for what is best for you in the Lord, and if you love me, and if you have my best interest in mind, and if you are willing to set yourself aside to do what is best for me in the Lord, then we are in a place where we can be strong and effective and unified for the Lord. And this is the call. These two women were divided over what we do not know. Maybe it had something to do with chapter 3. And this legalizing tendency, this, uh, this, uh, the, the concision, right? The dogs, the, the evil workers, the concision. Uh, one of them was not willing to count all things but loss. Maybe it had something to do with chapter two, that they did not have the mind of Christ, that they were each seeking their own and not the other. Maybe it had to do with both of them to some degree. And Paul tells them, calls them out by name, not unto common thinking in all things, but this unity in the Lord. And not only them, but then notice in verse 3. He says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul then amplifies his exhortation. 
saying that those in the church who are, uh, th that, that this one in the church, he calls his true yoke fellow, would help them. Now, this is an interesting word here. It's the only time in the entire Bible this word is used. It literally means a partner or a colleague in classical literature used to describe those who are paired together, those who are united, those who share something particular in common. It was specifically and most regularly used to speak of a married couple. And the question is, what's going on here? See, now remember in our King James Bible, we have this very unique advantage that the King James Bible used thee and thou and ye and your to differentiate between a second person singular pronoun and a second person plural pronoun. And notice here it says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. When you see a thee, a thou, or a thine in your Bible, you know that behind it in the Greek or in the Hebrew, there is one person being spoken to. It's a second person singular pronoun. And you know that when you see a ye, a your, or, or uh, um, uh, ye, your, yourself, I guess, uh, yourselves in the Bible, that it's a second person plural pronoun. Two or more people are being spoken to. A group is being spoken to. And so Paul says, and this is very strange. See, because when Paul addressed this letter, he addressed it to the church, the bishop, the, the, the saints in Jesus Christ were at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. We have no name until we get to Yodius and Syntyche. But then he says, I beseech thee, true yoke fellow. And he doesn't say who this yoke fellow is. We know it's not Clement. And by the way, this is probably not the Clement that became the Bishop of Rome, though some think it is. Maybe there would have been significant number of Clements around. But there is this true yoke fellow. And the question is, who is this true yoke fellow? Who was so closely related to Paul that he would use this word that, that is only used here in the New Testament and speaks of this unique pairing together of two people? Well, some say, well, this must mean that Paul was married. Not likely. First Corinthians seems to make it pretty clear that Paul was not married. Some believe that this may be Epaphroditus. That as Epaphroditus brings this letter back and it's being read before the church, Epaphroditus would know that because they had worked so closely together there in Rome with Paul under house arrest, that this would be reference to him. That's a, a possibility. Maybe there is someone else that we simply don't know of who was very, very closely connected with Paul. We know it's not Timotheus because Timotheus is with Paul at the beginning of the letter as the ones who are writing it. Timotheus would have been the other natural thought here, right? Because they were so closely linked together. The final thought is that yoke fellow is not actually an adjective, but is a name that perhaps, and you'll see this in, in more modern translations in a footnote, that rather than true yoke fellow, which is a, 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 a literal translation of what is said here, it might actually mean something to the effect of loyal syzygous, meaning a person's name. So instead of calling to a specific yoke fellow, he was actually naming a person by name and saying, you, person by name, help them. That's possible as well. That has a, a ring of, of possibility since he named Yodius, he named Syntyche, and he's also naming Clement here, right? Uh, we know that, that there, any number of names had meanings, right? Cephas uh, was, was Peter's uh, 
Hebrew name, of course, Peter, Petros means rock or stone, right? Um, uh, Barnabas means son of consolation. So, so they had names that also had real meanings. And maybe this here was an actual man whose name was Yokefellow, right? Syzygus. We don't know one way or another, but he is calling to a specific person, this true Yokefellow, to help these women. And these women, he says, were women that labored with him in the gospel. So he has a direct connection to these women. He knows who these women are. They, have, they, they, are, they are godly women. They have worked with him. And this explains this very personal appeal. And he calls for them to find a place of unity. It does seem as though from that, that indeed, these two women were a large part of the motivation for Paul to write this letter. That whatever was going on between them was deep, was abiding, and was, was threatening to the church. He acknowledges that these women are true believers in Jesus. He acknowledges they've been profitable unto the gospel, but they've lost focus. They have lost unity. See, our disunity is not necessarily always about us being um, people who, who don't care about the word of God or who have been ineffective for Christ. Unity makes us, disunity makes us ineffective for Christ. But this is a good warning that those who can labor faithfully in the gospel can find themselves in a place where they lose focus and then they become disunified. And then through that disunity, they become ineffective. So let us not think that this is something, well, you know, I've, I've been a faithful believer and I've been a faithful servant of the Lord for years, so I'm immune from this. We're not. Well, our church has been around a long time. Uh, we, we're immune from this. It's not. This unity was threatening to destroy their testimony and their effectiveness for the Lord. And if these women were not helped... then it could continue until the church became absolutely ineffective. And again, if we are also unwilling, if we fail to help one another through our own spiritual problems, through our times of faltering or failing, then how will any of us get the help we need? If we're so afraid to offend that we aren't willing to speak up, if we're so focused upon our own priorities that we aren't willing to bear one another's burdens, if we are, in fact, willing to walk away from a person who has a true spiritual issue without helping them address it, burying our heads in the sand and hoping that somehow it'll just work out in the end. Well, it might. But if that is all we're here to do, if you're just here to sit, listen, and leave, well, then we might as well just go to a live stream, right? I might as well just preach in my own, my own leisure instead of YouTube schedule to come on at a certain time and throw it out on a podcast and we can all sit at home in our pajamas and listen to this. If, if there's no functional purpose for us coming together other than to listen to me preach, well then there's really no functional purpose in us coming together. We're here to bear one another's burdens. We're here to fellowship one with another. We're here to hold each other accountable. We're here to be the body of Christ. So Paul writes to the church, he tells Yodius and Syntyche to seek out the same mind in the Lord. He exhorts this true yoke fellow with Clement and the other fellow laborers that he has, whose names are written in the book of life, to help these women. 
And he says to them, church, you are bound together. You are a single body in Christ. You have bound yourselves in fellowship. Help these women in need. And so when there's a problem in the church, we need to address it. When a brother or sister is having a difficulty, maybe it's personal, maybe it's interpersonal. We're not just talking about financial needs and health needs and whatever the case may be. When we see blind spots, when we have true concerns about a person's decision-making process, if you see a person and they're on a trajectory and then that trajectory is changing and you're concerned, maybe it's not your place to tell them. Maybe you need to appeal to a higher authority. Maybe you need to come to me say, hey, I'm worried about so-and-so. We had a conversation or I, I uh, you know, was talking with them or whatever it might be and, and, and they're t- telling me about this direction that they're going in and I'm concerned about that thing. Maybe it is something that you can deal with or take care of directly. Maybe uh, you need some counsel or maybe a group of people need to go and, and talk lovingly with someone about a direction which they're going But we need to do these things, not because we don't like them, but rather simply because we love them. And it's our privilege and responsibility to help them. And notice I didn't say rebuke them, I said help them. And notice I didn't say call them out or shame them, I said help them. Notice I didn't say reject them or judge them, I said help them. And remember the context of Paul's exhortation here. He confirmed his love for them. Then he exhorted them to deal with this problem in the church. And this is what we need to do. When we fail to do this, if we fail to tell people when they're going in the wrong direction, if we fail to help people that are struggling personally or interpersonally, we're leaving them to flounder on their own at a time when they need help the most. But even when we choose to help, do remember the manner in which we are called to help. I just mentioned, not in anger, not in rebuke, not in frustration, not in judgmentalism. I spoke of it this morning. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and he said this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, not they're saying you're super spiritual and they're not spiritual, but rather you who are, who are in the Spirit, right? This comes directly after Paul saying, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You who are walking in the Spirit, if a man is overtaken in a fault, if a man is walking in the flesh, that's what Galatians 5 was about, transitioning into Galatians 6, if there is someone about you that is manifesting the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, those things that Galatians 5, 19 and 20 talk about, If someone is doing that rather than walking in the Spirit, ye who are walking in the Spirit, that's what he means by being spiritual. This is not a condition of, hey, I know more than you. Hey, I've memorized more verses than you. Hey, I'm more pious than you. I I, I dress nicer than you on Sunday. Uh, I I, uh, spend more time in the Bible than you. That's not what it means to be spiritual. Ye who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, what Galatians 5, 21 and 22 says. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The church approaches a man with an eye towards restoration, not rejection. And we do so because I'm just as human as you are. 
And where today you may be the one overtaken in a fault, you may be the one manifesting carnality, tomorrow it might be me. And in that I am just as human as you, I have just as much potential for faltering as you, and so in a spirit of meekness, I should be eager to help my brother and sister in Christ through their falterings or failings, not judging them for their faults, but loving them into solutions. Expecting and hoping that if I were to, to falter in the same way, that you'd do the same for me. We see a similar exhortation in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul speaks of a certain man who was rebuked by the church for some sin. There were many corrections in 1 Corinthians that might have undergirded, that might have, have, have been the one that this man was the offender in. My thought is probably 1 Corinthians 5, the man who was uh, having an illicit relationship with his mother-in-law, and they said, rebuke that man, and, and, and with such an one, no, not to eat. But it could have also been the man in 1 Corinthians 6 who went to law against his brother. Or it could have been the man in 1 Corinthians 15 who claimed that, that there was no resurrection of the dead. We don't know which, which error it was in the church. Corinthians is full of rebukes. But what we know is that there was a man in the church who, who after Paul's initial letter in 1 Corinthians, uh, was rebuked heavily. And Paul speaks of this man who was rebuked in the church, and he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. In other words, I'm not going to go after him. He's, he's already been <laughs> afflicted by many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Take note of that. Paul speaks to the punishment or the, to the rebuke or to the, 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 the chastening that this man took for whatever it was. Maybe it was speaking directly against Paul. That's why Paul speaks of an offense against himself. And he says, look, if you've forgiven him, I forgive him. There was much by way of First and Second Corinthians about questioning Paul's authority as an apostle, right? So Paul encouraged the church to forgive him and to comfort him, to confirm their love toward him, lest he be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, lest his sorrow for his wrong take him so far that he loses hope of restoration. And then in verse 11, lest through this sorrow on his part, lest through a heart of unforgiveness on the church's part, Satan would gain advantage not over him, notice, but he says, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, the church. The church. I spoke to you in our prayer time about how often in the jail, one of the great problems that I deal with that holds these men and these women in their sin is the resentment and the unforgiveness they have over the circumstances of their past. Paul says it is important that we 
seek unto restoration in the church, that we seek unto right relationships in the church, that we seek unto this unity because we are not ignorant of Satan's tactics. We're not. We might ignore his tactics. We might pretend as though he's not around doing his work, but he is, isn't he? He is busy. Be sober. Be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Oh, how easy it must be for Satan to come into a church when disunity is found. How easy it must be when people begin to shut their mouths and not help one another, not care for one another, and not work through things one with another. How easy must it be when one is overtaken in a fault and, and there is no restoration? How easy it must be for Satan to find that foothold, to get into that church, and to begin to break us down systematically. Look, we're not ignorant of the way Satan works. We're not ignorant of his devices. We know that Satan uses division to his advantage. We know he undermines our love and our faith in one another. We know how he presses every flaw to his own advantage against us. To this end, Paul says, forgive, comfort, and confirm. Don't allow the, you, you, you see a man who is in sorrow over his sin, rejoice in that, but then get him over it. Get him back on the horse, right? Don't let him wallow in his error and to become deeper and deeper and deeper into the shame and the sorrow of his sin. Restore such a man in a spirit of meekness. It was the man's responsibility to repent here, but notice that the responsibility is not his in this passage. The church was responsible to forgive and to restore, lest he get the advantage not just over the man, but over the church. And this introduces us to a level of nuance in these matters. Because in Philippi, there was not a call by Paul for these women to repent of some great misdeed, is there? He doesn't say, I beseech Yodius and Syntyche to repent in sackcloth and ashes. He says, I beseech Yodius and Syntyche, as he speaks to these women, that they be of the same mind. And the church was being called not to open rebuke, but for a gentle and loving help of these women. And we'll see that as we continue in just a moment. Sometimes it is enough to simply see a problem, confront the problem in love, and help God's people through them. What a blessing it is if we can stop a problem before it has to get to the point of rebuke. What a blessing it is if we can see a little bit, if we can recognize Satan's devices, if we can see when there's a little bit, then there's something just slightly misaligned, and we can deal with it before it becomes a complete derailing of the process. Other times there must be that rebuke, repentance, forgiveness, comfort, restoration. But one thing is for certain, we dare not ignore the responsibility that we have one to another. I hasten on. Paul then reiterates something in, in verse 4, which we saw a couple of chapters ago. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul said in chapter 1 that he rejoiced over them. Right after he called them to rejoice in the Lord in chapter 3, he proceeded to warn them against dogs and evil workers in the concision. We see a similar thing here. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not in your church members, not in the fact that people are going along to get along. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you see the progression here? 
Stand fast in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Hold to God's way. Seek to God's unity. Rejoice in him together. Joy in the God of your salvation. Root your rejoicing in the eternal, not in the temporal. Root your rejoicing in the God who does not fail, just like you're rooting your your unity in the God who does not fail. If we seek to unify around material and temporal things, it will break down. If we seek to stand as a church in material and temporal things, it will break down. If we seek to rejoice in material and temporal things, it will break down. If we're just going to rejoice or seek unity or stand in material and temporal things, if we're only going to stand against the political problems of our day or the cultural problems of our day, if we're only going to seek unity in the fact that we we agree on various points of of, uh, standards or of of thinking, we we are standing on sinking sand. These things cannot last. They do not last. But that's not the call. The call is to stand fast in the Lord. The call is to be of the same mind in the Lord. The call is to rejoice in the Lord. See, because God does not change. And if we're all rejoicing in him, standing in him, being of the same mind in him, we will find unity that will not change. So Paul exhorts them twice, does he not? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. This is not insignificant. From both a practical and a spiritual standpoint, the repetition of this command reflects the urgency with which Paul desires this point, that our rejoicing would be in the Lord and that this rejoicing, this delight, this contentment, this unity and relationship that we have with the Lord would then motivate our actions one toward another. And that's what we find in verse five. One toward another. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord. Be moderate, gentle, mild, patient toward each other. The word moderation carries that idea, patience or gentleness. I rejoice in the Lord and I live one toward another in this type of moderation. A gentle hand one toward another. I'm not going to come up to you and smack you across the head and say, why are you doing dumb things? I'm going to come up and I'm going to gently help you, help us remain unified. You have perhaps seen those relationships, be they family relationships, marriage relationships, where everyone looks at that relationship and they say, that relationship is refreshing, it's healthy, it's balanced. Have you ever seen a husband and wife Or have you ever seen a family where you've just observed how that family functions and say, their family is just so healthy. It's so, so pleasant. It's so virtuous. Or that husband and wife, they interact in such a pleasant way one with another. They they interact in a way that's, that's refreshing. That idea. This is what the church should look like. When, when people come into the church, they ought to see our moderation. Our moderation should be known to all men. The way we functionally interact with uh, with one another should be so uniquely different from the kind of harsh, grating, selfish interaction of the world around us. Our gentleness should be apparent. Our love for one another should be apparent. People should walk into our midst and know us to be a church family who love, respect, 
and help one another. Not because we agree on everything, but because we rejoice in the Lord, stand in the Lord, have the same mind in the Lord. And notice the last phrase here, the Lord is at hand. Simply put, believer, there is no time for us not to be living this way. There's too many people to reach for us to be fussing over one another. There's too little time for the Lord's work to be done simply to hope that my brothers and sisters in Christ will one day figure out how to help themselves while I go about my daily life. Investment takes time and it takes effort and it takes work. Unity is difficult. It means setting myself aside for the good of others. The mind of Christ, the end of rejoicing in the Lord operates in such dramatic contradiction to the desires of the flesh that it can only be possible as a result of seeking unto the Lord himself because rejoicing in my brethren or in my church or in myself isn't gonna cut it. The Lord is at hand. So don't waste time in this. Like I said, you can spend the next five years hoping I figure out what's wrong with the church and maybe I will, but you know what? The Lord is at hand. So let's get it done with. Let's get it figured out. Let's move forward. Let's do something. Let's stay together and go do something for the Lord. And that's what I would like to do in our final minutes today is to think about what this help looks like. A prescription for confrontational love with an eye toward bringing about practical unity. And then this, this we'll try to make fairly brief here. How do we help one another grow without bringing interpersonal disaster? It's important to note that you can't control how others react, can you? You can only do your best to anticipate their concerns, their insecurities, possible misunderstandings in order to do your best to help a brother and sister in Christ. And as Paul presents this passage in Philippians 4, 1 through 5, I, I believe he does a really good job at charting a course for how we can make this happen. First, confirm your love. Make sure your brother or sister in Christ knows how much you love them. Second, stay focused on the goal. Don't get sidetracked on other issues or problems. Focus upon the problem, the, the thing, the, the disunity or the concern at hand. Don't, don't lose focus. Three, be specific about the problem. Don't dance around it. State it with clarity. Bring it back to Scripture. Help them understand why it is you bear a concern that you think is worthy of note to them. Four, keep yourself out of the way. Make sure the issue isn't about what you do or don't like, but rather about what might be hindering the ability to find unity as brethren, might be hindering uh, some measure of peace or understanding as it relates to the action, the thought, the, 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 the direction in which they're going. And five, be gentle. Be gentle. Be moderate. Don't come down with a hammer. Let them know in that loving, gentle, meek way, considering thyself also. This is what Paul did as he exhorted Euodius and Syntyche, and then as he exhorted his true yoke fellow and Clement and the other fellow laborers to work with them in this regard. All with the goal of maintaining strong relationships forged in a unity of mind in the Lord. 
And this allows us to operate in a manner that's free of the kinds of distractions and concerns which will separate us rather than unify us and allow us to minister effectively together rather than ministering in division. And brethren, if the Spirit of God has taken His Word and touched your heart with it this evening, if there are those in the body with whom there is a problem, so much so that there ought to be between you and a brother some measure of interaction, may I encourage you to deal with it. If you are seeking to simply not rock the boat, but you've noticed a true blind spot in a fellow believer, deal with it. Help them. Let's help one another. Lovingly, gently, help one another. Helping one another to bring about practical unity in the midst of the church through confrontational love. That we may all be better, all rejoice in the Lord, all have a testimony before the lost, and work together to effectively win them to Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.